You're listening to a podcast from Northeast Christian Church. For more information about Northeast, go to ncclex.org. Thanks for listening. It's Good Friday. Do you sense the irony in that name, Good Friday? I mean, you think about it. Today's the day that we remember the crucifixion of Jesus. Maybe the most unlikely person to ever have been executed, and certainly by such a barbaric manner. The Romans, they regarded crucifixion with horror. Cicero, who was a Roman author, said that crucifixion was the most cruel and horrifying of deaths. So some of you may be wondering, why would we call this Good Friday? Originally, the Persians developed crucifixion. It wasn't a Roman creation. The Persians created it. They gave it to the people of Carthage, and the Romans got it from, the, from Carthage. And the Romans, some say, perfected it. It was the most degrading form of execution in the ancient world. In fact, the Romans didn't use it in Italy. And no Roman citizen would suffer the indignity of crucifixion unless they were guilty of a high crime against Caesar. It was a barbaric way of executing someone in every way. And it was reserved primarily for foreign slaves and foreign criminals. And yet, this was the way that Jesus died. One could not exaggerate the horrors of crucifixion. Movies like The Passion of the Christ have attempted to depict the terrible realities of crucifixion to the degree that most of us have some understanding of what a person went through. First, there was the scourging, this beating that left some dead. They never survived it. There was tremendous blood loss, and some even would slip into shock. And then to be crucified on a cross, hanging by the wounds in your hands and feet until the weight of your own body crushes your lungs and you can't get your breath and you die from asphyxiation. It was a horrible, humiliating, shameful kind of death. And when you think about crucifixion and you look at Jesus being so unworthy and going through all of this horrible physical torture, you're a bit surprised when you realize that as bad as all of that was, the worst part for Jesus wasn't that. It was the separation from his father. Three hours in darkness. He took on the judgment for the sins of the world. We would see this only as a horrible event were it not for what the gospel writers tell us. In particular, we're going to look at what John says about it. If you have your Bible or phone or tablet, you want to follow along. John 19 is where we're going to be, uh, where we're going to be studying today. And John starts in verse 16, is where we'll pick up the narrative. He sim- simply says, "Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified." According to historians, the victims of crucifixion often were so panicked so terrified that they'd lose their senses and have to be driven like wild animals to the place of crucifixion. At times, they were so distraught, they had to be tied up and dragged because their resistance 
was so great. The horror of the scourging alone would increase the victim's fear and anxiety, which made getting them from the place of scourging up to the place of crucifixion very, very difficult. That wasn't the case with Jesus. John says in John 19, 17, carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. When they got to Golgotha, they stripped Jesus and started gambling for his clothing. But there was no panic and there was no struggle. They told him where to go and he went. And this was to fulfill the prophecy found in Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Jesus was willing to go to the cross. There's no resistance from him. He even carries his own cross. Now that wasn't uncommon. The reason the prisoner carried his cross was to parade the one who was to be executed through the streets as a warning to everyone that crime doesn't pay. Also, if there was someone who had evidence that might overturn this death sentence, that information could come forth and could actually save someone destined to die. However, no one came to the defense of Jesus. And we read in verse 18... John simply says, there they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side, and Jesus in the middle. The very fact that Jesus was executed by crucifixion is an interesting fact, because Jews didn't practice crucifixion. Jews would stone people as their form of capital punishment. In fact, there was a place nearby that historians tell us where there is an 11-foot-high cliff. And the convicted person who was to be punished by capital punishment was thrown off of that cliff under Jewish law and then would be crushed by stones that were thrown from above. That's the way the Jews executed people. Pretty barbaric in its own right. However, Jesus indicated earlier that stoning wouldn't be the way that he would die. He said in John, the 12th chapter, verses 32 and 33, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. So John tells us, verse 23, that there were four soldiers in this execution unit. There were four pieces of clothing Sandals, a belt, a headpiece, and an outer cloak that Jesus had. Each soldier got one of those articles of clothing. And then there was one other piece of clothing. It was a seamless one-piece tunic. If they were to cut this into four pieces, it would ruin its value. So they cast lots to fairly determine who would get the tunic. Casting lots would be like you and I throwing dice or flipping a coin to determine. Verse 24, John quotes another prophecy found in Psalm 22, 18. 
They divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. It's interesting, these Roman soldiers knew nothing about the Old Testament. But they operated within the divine purposes of God. Some have suggested that there are as many as 300 prophecies in the Old Testament that are fulfilled by Jesus. Mathematician Peter W. Stoner computed that the probability of one person fulfilling 48 of those prophecies was one chance in a trillion, 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 trillion. Are you keeping up? Trillion, trillion. You get the idea. There are 13 trillions. One chance, one chance in 13 trillions that one person would just coincidentally fulfill 48 of those prophecies. There's a chance, but it's not probable. And that just doesn't happen by chance. You see, God was behind this all along. We see more of this evidence. In verse 28, John tells us that Jesus said, I'm thirsty, so the Romans gave him wine vinegar to drink. Apparently that was the refreshing drink of the first century. Earlier he had refused gall that they had offered him. Gall was a sedative that was oftentimes offered to those who were crucified to lessen the pain. Jesus refused that. Now he's thirsty, and vinegar is exactly what they gave him. This fulfilled a prophecy in Psalm 69, 21. In my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. Are you beginning to see every detail of Jesus' death is in perfect harmony with the Old Testament prophecies? As graphic and horrific as it is, the reality is is that it seems to run along a narrative that was predicted hundreds and hundreds of years before. So much so that in verse 28, John says, these things happened the way they did so that Scripture would be fulfilled. And then verse 30. One of the saddest and yet maybe greatest verses in all of Scripture. It says that Jesus says three simple words. It is finished. And then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Some who know more about crucifixion than I say that he died relatively early for one who was being crucified. This wasn't due to weakness, though. It was because Jesus laid down his life. John 10, 18 says, No one has taken it from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. And this is precisely what Jesus did. So after he laid down his life, we look down at verse 36, and it says, These things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones was broken. Now what's going on with that? Now, not breaking bones, why would this be important? Well, here's what was going on. In verse 31, we see 
the, uh, John writes, now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. And the Jews didn't want the bodies of these dying men re- remaining on the crosses during the Sabbath. That would desecrate the, the Sabbath, and this was a special Sabbath. So to have dying or dead men hanging on crosses was not something they wanted. They wanted those bodies down from those crosses by 6 o'clock that Friday. Because that was the beginning of Sabbath. So they asked Pilate to break the legs of those on the crosses. Because when their legs are broken, they can't push up, which is how they breathe. And they rather quickly asphyxiate or suffocate. So the soldiers came and they broke the femur bones, the thigh bones of the first man who was crucified with Jesus. And then they broke the bones of the second man. But when they came to Jesus, they realized that he was already dead. Breaking the thigh bone was not an easy task. In fact, it was rather difficult. So they didn't break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear to confirm that he truly was dead. Out came blood and water, which indicated death had already happened. So there was no need to break the legs of Jesus. Again, all of this happened to fulfill the prophecy that not one of his bones would be broken. There are a couple of interesting Old Testament references with regard to this prophecy that not one of his bones will be broken. Interestingly, in Exodus 12 and Numbers 9, these two references in the Bible describe the Passover lamb. This was a sacrifice that was offered as an offering to God at the Passover. During the first Passover, you may remember, the blood of the Passover lamb was applied to the top and to the sides of the doorframe of a house. And when the death angel came by during the tenth plague in Egypt, he would pass over that home and not permit the destroyer to enter it. Any home without the blood of the lamb would have their firstborn son struck down that night. There are a lot of similarities between the Passover lamb and Jesus. One of those requirements of the sacrifice was that the bones of the Passover lamb were not to be broken. And we know that that was also prophesied about Jesus. But maybe the greater Similarity is that the blood of the Lamb of God, like the Passover Lamb, saved those from death. And the blood of Jesus saves us from death, too. There are many similarities between Jesus and the Passover Lamb. In fact, Paul went so far in 1 Corinthians 5.17 to say, For Christ, our Passover Lamb has been crucified. He called him our Passover lamb. John points out that there's another prophecy that's fulfilled. They will look on the one they have pierced, which is found in Zechariah 12.10. All of these prophecies, verse 36 says, all of these things, these fulfilled prophecies, happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. What were the odds? Trillion and a trillion and a trillion and a trillion and 
prophecies fulfilled affirm that Jesus was the Messiah. And my friends, because we know the tomb was empty on Easter Sunday, he still is the Messiah today. When we look at Jesus on the cross, on the one hand, there is reason for pity and sadness. And there is reason to feel the horror of this event. But on the other hand, the New Testament writers don't let us fixate on that for very long. Instead, what they force you to understand is that everything, every single thing that happened in this story seems to be fulfilling the scripture. This is the mighty work of God. Through this, our Lord Jesus purchased our redemption. He paid for our sins by being the complete fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies related to the death and the sacrifice of the Messiah. He did that for us. He went through all of that for you, for me. He died for our sins that they might be washed away. And that, my friends, is why we call this Good Friday. Let's pray together. Oh God, we thank you for the way that your word shines light for us to understand this amazing, awesome plan that you had to save us. God, the crucifixion of Jesus, we know it was horrible. Probably far more horrible and depressing than we can understand. And yet overriding all of this ugliness and pain and suffering, we see your glory shining through. We see your hand at work in every movement of this story, in the words of Jesus that he spoke, in the actions of the Roman soldiers, in every single detail. You're at work. This is the great evidence of your divine guidance for us, evidence that you control everything, evidence of your love for us. God, we know that Jesus went to the cross because you love us. As our Passover lamb, you covered our sins. You spared us from the destroyer, from eternal condemnation. And God, today we just say thank you for the cross. Lord, as we close this service, we pause for a moment to gather around your table and to remember the sacrifice this bread that represents Jesus' body. Jesus, the Lamb of God, the Passover Lamb, the sacrifice. And this cup, which was the price that was paid for us, the blood, it washes away our sins. We know, God, we're not worthy. We didn't do anything to deserve this. It's all done because of your love. And for that, we take these emblems and just remember with hearts of gratitude what you were willing to sacrifice so that we might have a relationship with you. We take these emblems today, Lord, to remember the sacrifice that you gave for us on the cross. And we do all this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.